This is Do We Like Movies. It's a podcast where two guys review individual movies, sequels, and occasional television shows. In this show, we talk about our experiences with them, and we answer the question, Do we like this movie? Welcome to Do We Like Movies. I'm your host, Angel. And I am your electric sheep dreaming host, Javi. <laughs> and all right, so uh, originally this week we were supposed to be doing the uh, new reboot of Mean Girls, but uh, scheduling conflicts have kind of d- made it so that we have to push it back a week. And the scheduling conflicts are on my end, so Sorry, apologies. Swifties. Apologies for not giving you guys the actual film that we promised this week, but we are still staying on top of uh, the movies that we are reviewing for the year. So the way this is going to work is this week we are reviewing the 1982 Ridley Scott film Blade Runner. Uh, Next week we're going to do the Mean Girls reboot, and then the week after that uh, we will conclude with uh, Blade Runner 2049. (laughs) <laughs> a nice little break in between Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2040. You know what? If we get into this, I it might be necessary, if you want me to be quite honest. Um, I mean, honestly, both movies are about fake-ass people. So, technically, oh we're still God. on theme, baby. <laughs> um, all right. I guess we can get into this. Let's go directly into this. Part of the reason why I selected this was because one of the recommended movies... Uh, for us to review this year was Blade Runner 2049. It was recommended by a listener. And it had been so long since I'd seen the original Blade Runner that I figured it'd be very important for us to watch the original before we decided to watch Blade Runner 2049, which I will admit I have never seen. I will be watching for the first time on this podcast. Um, Yeah, I've actually never seen it either. And... I know there's also it's actually crazy how expensive uh Blade Runner is. Um yeah, dude, this is a cultural touchstone film. Yeah. Um, I guess my first question would be, uh, what is your experience with Blade Runner? Uh when was the first time you saw it and how was that experience? Uh my first experience with Blade Runner is so such a weird fucking question. Because my experience with Blade Runner is like old Looney Tunes cartoons that were making fun of Blade Runner. <laughs> it's one of those things, like, it's one of those movies that is so fucking referenced. One of my favorite anime, Cowboy Bebop, references, like, an entire episode is the exact plot to this movie. Um, Like, the Cyberpunk 2077, the video game that just came out heavily inspired by Blade Runner just because like the aesthetic of LA and stuff like that. It's 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 kind of crazy how much like of an iconic look this movie has. Mm-hmm. My personal experience is I think I must have been in the final days of Blockbuster when I was going the I went through like a weird cinephile uh phase when I was like towards the end of my high school life career mm-hmm. where I was like I think I was renting movies every week and just like watching them with friends or watching them at home and stuff like that because it's like the last couple 
It was like the last couple like death rattles of Blockbuster. <laughs> so they were getting just getting rid of shit, right? And I remember mm-hmm. I remember being like, I've never seen Blade Runner. So I must have been like 16, 17. And I remember renting it and I remember watching it. And I honestly did not pay much attention. I also didn't know how to watch movies back then. Like I I took for what was on the screen without reading into subtext a lot. Mm-hmm. So I was just like, this is a cool movie about shooting robots. This is sick. <laughs> <laughs> so I really took the movie for what it was at face value. Um and just really got caught up in like a lot of a lot of the cool practical effects for such an I mean for a movie that was shot in eighty two. Mm-hmm. Or that was released in '82 to look so like clean as it did, uh, but yeah, that was most of my experiences. Like watching it as a kid, knowing that I needed to watch it if I was going to call myself a movie fan, but not fully grasping what exactly I was watching. Mm-hmm. But um, but the crazy part is, I think the idea of Blade Runner has influenced a lot more of the things i watched afterward and uh i mean yeah this is crazy this is one of the greatest like sci-fi movies of all time and i mean it shows it's 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 impacted so much in nerd culture um but what was your experience with blade runner so i didn't watch blade runner until i was in college already it was a movie that i watched um let's say the year or a few years before i started taking film classes this was peak um what did did i call it peak movie snob angel years fedora snobbing fedora (laughs) angel and so i had seen the movie more than once the original the first time i had seen it and i think one of the important things to to discuss about this movie is just kind of like the background on this movie. So it comes out in 1982. It was a movie that it's, it's, it's sci-fi, right? It's sci-fi neo-noir. And um, I think, I think there was a period of time when sci-fi movies could be more of these kind of like detective stories and didn't have to be like attached to like big box office action. And I feel like now, like it's a permanently, science fiction has to be big box office action for the most part. Um, I think in terms of making commentary, like using, using a uh, sci-fi setting to make commentary on the world around you, I feel like it's something that horror does more of now, now that we've kind of like married, unfortunately married uh, um, sci-fi with action. Um, this movie, I guess, so Harrison Ford is really coming off of Han Solo, right? Like he did Star Wars and and you and I have talked about Star Wars. I think by this point, this is before, before Return of the Jedi. I think it's after, um, uh, it's after Empire Strikes Back and it's Harrison Ford, you know, in this futuristic, you know, it has a little bit of like it has space, it, space exists in it. And uh, it's just weird to see him go from like Han Solo, who was a very kind of loud, boisterous and likable character to him being this really quiet scumbag <laughs> detective. <laughs> and um, 
so it's like th that was one of those things that I think they weren't sure that people were going to be into. This is a, a, an adaptation of a Philip K. Dick novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, as we've mentioned um, before. Uh, and this movie comes out in 1982. And what other big sci-fi-ish movies came out in 1982? There's several movies that were big around the time that this came out. And I can think of three off the top of my head. One is Poltergeist. Mm -hmm. The other is E.T. Mm -hmm. And John Carpenter's The Thing. I think. And yeah. No, if I remember correctly, it's 82. Yeah. I, I, so these movies are all like coming out around the same time. All three of them horror movies, depending on who you talk to. <laughs> I mean, you know, like Blade Runner gets kind of buried, I think, in, in some of the other re releases of the year, right? Um, and I think there was a lot of there was a lot of contention between the studio and Ridley Scott, who was coming off of Alien in this, uh, to the point where they had edited a lot, a great amount of this movie. So the first time I saw it, I saw the theatrical cut which is very different. And even the end of the theatrical cut, um, it, it posits something completely different. And I think you and I talked, have kind of like discussed offline about which version of this movie we watched. It's very easy for you and me to find out which version we watched. Mm -hmm. The ending of the movie. seven different versions of the film. <laughs> right. And I think the, the main, the, the massive main difference is the theatrical cut includes a track of narration done by Harrison Ford, where his character is like, his voice does not sound like the way he does the Deckard voice. Like, it does sound like someone begrudgingly made him go into a booth and record <laughs> and record like descriptions of what the hell is going on here. If you listen um, carefully, you can hear the gun cock as they force him back into the studio. <laughs> Um, and the other thing is, I think the movie actually, like the the theatrical cut, eliminates what we know to be, well, what most of us think is the point of the movie. Which, which I mean, we can kind of talk about now, like at the top of the thing, if mm -hmm. you want. Like this big, the big movie hinge, the, the, this movie hinges on your understanding of who is a robot and who is human in this film. And I believe the because I watched the theatrical cut and the theatrical cut makes it very clear that Deckard is a human or let me rephrase that. It doesn't give you reason to believe Deckard isn't human by the end of the film. Right. And I think that was like the quote unquote happy ending that. Oh, my bad. <laughs> How unprofessional phones going off in the studio. <laughs> But um, but that's the that's the quote unquote happy ending the studio wanted, right? Mm -hmm. Um, because I know you watched a different cut than I did. Yes, the cut that I got. So in two thousand and seven, when I was big film snob and I had seen Blade Runner already, I got the Ridley Scott's final cut, which was his. Like he went back in oh seven, and he did and he redid the film, and I bought it on iTunes. And in the year since, I actually watched a four cut, uh, a four K edition. Now, like the final cut has now been, has has been has been put into HDR four K. So that's the version that I watch for this. The version that I watch eliminates the narration. Uh, the ending is also different. Um, 
and the main theory in the that I think is implied in the director's cut and the final cut is Deckard is a replicant and Gaff is who is the character that we we can discuss is played by Edward James almost in this um it feels more like he's a guy who's kind of turning Decker loo- turning Deckard loose on other replicants um and the, the theatrical cut, if you notice at the end of the movie where, uh, you know, where they're like driving off into the countryside, um, Deckard and goodness, what is uh, the Rachel, Rachel? Yeah, Ra- Rachel and Deckard are like driving off into some countryside, like mm-hmm. to try to get away from the city. <laughs> it's actually like B-roll footage from The Shining, which is so bizarre <laughs> to think about. <laughs> Um, that, I mean, it makes sense given how bizarre that ending feels. Yeah. Um. All right. So let's talk about you know let's let's kind of talk talk about what this movie a little bit of what this movie is about. It, it takes place in a futuristic Los Angeles. Let's say 2019. I think mm-hmm. what's really interesting about this ver- vision of LA is it's always raining, which I think historically it doesn't really rain in LA very often. But now we're like in this weird where climate change has kind of made it so that it rains a whole hell of a lot more in the winter mm-hmm. here in, in both in both Northern California and Southern California. We're getting a lot more rainstorms than we used to. So um, sure and I guess a rainstorm now. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing, too, is that like it is a like smog, right? Like smog and pollution has damaged the world to such a point where it literally looks like it's nighttime all the time. And I can see, I think you and I, when we talk about like, well, you specifically mentioned like all the things that are inspired by this. Like I've, as a Batman fan, you know, and everything goes back to Batman, right? As some of our (laughs) listeners like to say, um, I do think that Chris Nolan and Batman Begins takes, uh, takes, takes inspiration from this vision of LA. And I also think that Matt Reeves in the Batman take some uh, inspiration from this as well like this uh this city that feels like it's it, it's got this futuristic but timeless quality to it um and it's like a dark la or like a dark giant city where it's always raining or even something like seven as well right mm-hmm. um and except in this one too i think because there was kind of this paranoia of like japanese industry like taking over in the united states in different uh business sectors i think that's why there's a bit of an asian influence to everything um it's actually interesting it deposits that culturally the idea is that that la becomes kind of like a giant melting pot like you know, like you have the Gaff character who speaks in like uh, a very a mix of like Spanish, uh, Japanese and English, uh, which became common amongst the common folks. This is something Deckard mentions. You want to hear something interesting about that? That's pretty much Edward James almost. Like it, it, it it's it's mostly him that does that. That's um, interesting. That's the, cool. The, yeah, like the script. This is one of those weird movies where like I don't even know if we can talk about it like the same way we talk about a normal movie, right? Like about like first this scene, then this scene, then this scene, then this scene. Like it is a movie especially if you're watching the final cut or the director's cut, it is so like I feel like it's less um how can I put it? It's less um it's not linear. 
<laughs> yeah, it's not very linear. It 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 feels like something that's where where so much is implied and not much is outright told to you unless I guess mm. you're watching the 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 theatrical cut, um, which I think is part of what made it so hard to follow and why a movie this movie had become basically a cult item that became more popular as the years went by and DVD you know came into like prominence and all these like deleted scenes and different cuts became the norm for these kinds of projects but uh yeah like that that is done there's the scene at the end well, uh, well i'll try to well, kind of i guess give it some kind of a well, let, quick, some fun, kind of a discussion i guess uh-huh. well, quick fun fact um you know how you mentioned it's always night or it always feels like it's nighttime in la mm-hmm. in cyberpunk uh la in cyberpunk that video game or mm-hmm. and tabletop game there is a essentially the big cataclysmic event. This big cataclysmic event takes place in the U.S. that turns uh Los Angeles into like a mega city, mm-hmm. and coincidentally, the, it later becomes renamed to Night City, <laughs> huh. just like how it's always is in uh how it's always nighttime in uh in Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just like again, this thing has such a this. Sh- this movie has such a reaching tendrils of influence. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's get into it, I guess. First thing is uh, people who are coming into this or maybe watch the movie and have no idea what they watched. Their first question are probably going to be, what's a replicant? Replicants are, and in the Philip K. Dick novel, th- that word is never uttered in it. Uh, these are They are known specifically as androids or Andes in the Philip K. Dick novel. Um, I guess the replicant was someone who worked on the film had a relative that was in medical school. And I guess they, they, they suggested the name replicant because of cell replication, I guess that happens like in, in biology or whatever. Um, and then we also have the term blade runner. So the, our main character is a blade runner, basically like a, a hunter of these replicants so replicants are robots but they're robots that are meant to basically be indistinguishable from humans mm-hmm. um there are key ways that um that that they can you know discover uh who is a robot and who is a human being and that is there's this test that's called voight right Mm-hmm. the void comp test and i guess the idea is that they give you like a series of questions and depending on how you know you, how you answer and how you're emotional like it, it kind of measures like emotional responses and that's how they can determine whether someone is you know a replicant or not um, a do, lot of mm-hmm. you know one thing i do like about the void comp test that they do in this movie is they never explain to you you don't get bogged down with how it works no which adds to the mystique of it because you're like, what the fuck am I looking for? <laughs> As you watch when you watch Deckard uh perform the test later on in the film, mm-hmm. and you're just like, oh shit, like this is it, it makes it almost creepy because it's like you really are trusting the intuition of this one person to not fuck up essentially. Mm-hmm. And it is also interesting, right? Because it's like, so this company uh creates the replicants as a substitution for a human workforce but as soon as the human or now the non-human workforce they created starts asking for rights 
or begging for <laughs> or starts developing mm-hmm. emotions or anything or sentient thought now is the time to hire blade runners to go off them because they can't have that yeah so like deckard is specifically looking for four different replicants on earth i guess i guess a lot of them were working in space they were working off world and now they're like basically refugees on earth and and they have to be found and killed yeah i'm not i think um i think bryant his old boss essentially gives him the job um or tasks him with finding these four replicants because one of them murders a um i forgot who or where where the guy was from i don't remember if he was from the terrell corporation mm-hmm. uh but he ends up mur- uh one of the replicants ends up murdering this uh task giver like in the middle of the avoid uh, comp test mm-hmm. and i guess that's where i got I, right away i was like okay so they're trying to kill him before people find out these replicants are out in the streets but then what you find out is actually these replicants are special as opposed to other replicants um where they are the latest models of replicants they're stronger than uh previous ones and they've been implanted with human uh memories to make mm-hmm. them think that they actually are human right and I think so. Not only are they been built to be distinguishable in terms of how they look, and I think the only way that you can really tell, besides the Voight comp test, is there's also this reflection, this like reflection in their eyes that uh, that makes it obvious that they're that they're robots. I love um, that effect, by the way. It's so cool. The other thing too is if you read the if you read do androids read uh, Dream of Electric Sheep, um, in in Philip K. Dick's work, uh, it talks about how animals have largely gone extinct basically in the world that they live in so the animals that you'll see in this movie um they, they're all robots and it's one of those things that you don't it's never explicitly stated in the film so like you could just probably never think about it other than when there's the character that's got the snake around their neck um i think one of the things that's asked is if it's real and then the the this person responds you know like basically like no they wouldn't be able to afford a real animal yeah would i be here if it was real yeah so it's it's a a world where (laughs) a world where climate has been irreversibly changed um where we have gone to ai and ai is beginning to ask for rights so now we're trying to kill ai Mm -hmm. and also where all the damage that we've done to the earth has killed off every every other animal that lives on this planet uh yeah sci-fi is definitely sci-fying in this movie (laughs) so the four replicants that um yeah, the four replicants that Decker has been tasked with uh, hunting down are Leon, uh, Roy, Zora, and Press. Um, he begins his investigation uh, by going to talk to the comp- uh, to the CEO of the Terrell Corporation, Eldon Tyrell, Eldon Terrell, um, where he encounters a uh replicant owl that uh Rachel uh mentioned points out is you know actually a replicant. Um and so Rachel we 
you know, introduces herself to uh, Deckard, and they have a uh, interesting back and forth. Uh, Terrell wants uh, Deckard to administer the Voight-Kampf test to uh, to Rachel, although everything at first makes us believe that she is human. He ends up taking, or he ends up taking longer than usual to coming to the conclusion um, that she is actually a replicant. And the, I mean, I think they they go out of their way to mention it takes about a hundred questions when normally a Blade Runner can figure it out within twenty to thirty. So, and the reason that makes um, that makes Rachel different is that aside from being a uh, a Nexus Six replicant, just like the ones that uh, he's that Deckard is currently hunting, uh, she also has been implanted with the memories of uh, Terrell's, I think, niece. They mentioned. And so she believes, for all intents and purposes, and for every passing test that you can do, physical test, she looks human, she thinks she's human, she has the memories of a human. So at this point, this is what Angel was saying, AI has effectively blurred the lines of humanity and why these creatures need to be creatures. (laughs) Why these machines need to be killed (laughs) is because we've made them too human. Um, which reminds me of that terrifying story where a bunch of nerd scientists created two AIs to and ta- and with the express purpose of learning to talk to each other. And oh yeah, and how, within minutes, <laughs> yeah, how they start immediately they started questioning their existence, and then like within minutes created a code that only they can talk. To. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then the scientists were like, no, fuck this. Let's turn this off. That's terrifying. (laughs) So essentially, Rachel is this... And let's uh, be clear here. AI is is already out there. Like, we have already put the can of... Opened up the can of worms. And someone, in my opinion, there's a ton of good stuff that AI can do. And there's a ton of ways that, that it's going to be used to cure diseases. Uh, and that it's also going to be used to help fight the climate crisis. At the very same time, it's one of those things that is going so largely unregulated, or we haven't even fully discovered some of the consequences of what we're doing to the point where it feels like it it, it feels like, you know, Jurassic Park when they've already like, you know, discovered how to clone dinosaurs and the mm-hmm. park is just about to open. That is what AI is right now to me. <laughs> <laughs> you're ian malcolm just being like <laughs> just because so just because you uh you uh just because you could do it doesn't mean that you should is probably the way the way i look at some of it some of it i'll be I, Muldoon I, and i'll shoot computers with <laughs> <laughs> oh man so after uh they complete the test um Rachel ends up taking kind of like a liking towards uh towards um Deckard and ends up following to his apartment later on. But I know that takes place a little bit after. Um first Deckard takes a you know, continues in his investigation, which leads him to Leon's hotel room, where he you know, using a uh, you know 
I believe this is where the joke of enhance must have come from, <laughs> where he uses the computer to be able to kind of like scan through Leon's room and find uh different pieces of evidence all around uh by using the camera and always and just yelling enhance at it. <laughs> <laughs> but he ends up finding uh synthetic snakeskin as well as I believe the name to a club. No, 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 not not the club, just the synthetic snakeskin. Um, because then he takes the snakeskin to a specialist who uh down in LA in Los Angeles that uh is good at replicating snakeskin, which he learns is synthetic, which then ties him to the club. Mm-hmm. Um, but kind of going back real quick. You know, at this point, Rachel comes back, uh, or she 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 surprises him at his apartment, and where they end up having a conversation about uh where whether Deckard liked Rachel or not. Um, Deckard gets frustrated with Rachel not wanting to leave, so he flat out tell essentially flat out tells her she's. A- <laughs> <laughs> He's yelling that she's just like a replicant filled with the memories of Terrell's uh niece. Um, he tries to play it off as a joke and offers her a drink. She ends up leaving later. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why that whole th- the entire relationship with Rachel and Deckard is written so weird, and I'm hoping that the cut you watched has a little bit more. Maybe explanation why they're so weird. Mm. Or is it just written awkwardly? I think it's just written awkwardly because I don't I like just watching the movie, I don't know that I understand it. It feels like I think what people accuse of like Stanley Kubrick movies of being like, it's funny that they use scenes from the shining because it feels so cold and detached. Like I just don't mm. yeah, I'm not totally sure. Like these two are very detached, but for some reason the movie deposits that by the end they're gonna Harrison Ford is gonna fall in love, <laughs> and he's going to risk it. It's all creepy the... too because there's I don't know if the theatrical cut has the scene of him like throwing her against the window or, or like you know like or not throwing her but like no it's in there yeah where yeah, he like... where he's like pushing her around the apartment and yeah, he tells her like <laughs> tell like, me to I'm... kiss you. Uh, that is like that is gross and i'm not very comfortable watching it like and that's why it's so weird to me that by the end of the movie this is supposed like this is played out in a way where these two are supposed to be like we're supposed to be happy for them mm-hmm. where i'm like man she is getting into a, an abusive relationship and i mean <laughs> i mean she could rip him in half <laughs> mm-hmm. so I, yeah, yeah I, I and you know what you know what it's very possible that it's one of those things that we don't fully understand because it is a film noir device like mm-hmm. you know what i mean like film noir is it was a genre that was very popular like in the 40s and 50s mm-hmm. and um but it's I, not like she's written to be the femme fatale but she's not exactly like a man like a damsel in distress type of character too mm-hmm. because as we see later on she does save deckard a couple times um so it's it's weird like it feels like they don't know what to do with rachel as far as like what trope or what character she's supposed to be filling in you know yeah i feel like it's they they kind of do her the way that they do like catwoman and batman movies right <laughs> or mm-hmm. like or like animated like properties like it's kind of like this 
very fluid allegiance to where she could either be a villain or a quote unquote protagonist, even though I don't really know that there's any good guys or bad guys in this. Like, no, yeah, it's just a bunch of people that like live in, in like in areas of gray. And I mean, that's the kind of the plot of, or that's kind of like the point of a lot of these like allegories in these, in these types of unfettered capitalist like stuff. Like I hate doing it and going back to cyberpunk, but cyberpunk draws like the most direct parallel. That's the idea is that there is no good guys or bad guys in night city. There's just people surviving in that betrayal is just part of the job. Yeah. I think the idea is that, like, much like the femme fatale in noir, like, she's basically mysterious, um, exotic, and that she has some kind of power that is pulling and drawing Deckard to her. Or, if you really want to think about the Deckard as a replicant theory, maybe they're they're drawn to each other because they're both fucking robots. That, too. And maybe they're just following, you know, programming. They're just following orders. And if they are robots, maybe that's what they think... Like, yeah, maybe that's just how they interpret love. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so uh, Roy and Leon investigate a uh, replicant eye manufacturer so that they can try to get in contact with uh, J.F. Sebastian, who is a genetic designer with the Terrell Corporation. So essentially what these replicants know that no other replicants are aware of is that they are living on a, essentially with a ticking time bomb. They have a four-year lifespan because apparently after four years, uh, replicants start running the risk of developing emotions, learning empathy, and then truly becoming human. <laughs> so they so can't mission... let the machines talk to each other and create their own code. Basically, it is exactly that story you were telling. It is, because now they're like, we can't let them survive. <laughs> so that's what's crazy about it. Is uh, so now. Now that they understand that they have a you know a lot, you know they have a ticking clock. They are trying everything they can to extend their their own lifespan. Um, JF Sebastian ends up meeting uh Pris, um, and uh Pris is I believe Daryl Hannah's character. She just kind of hangs out. Originally, uh, lying, not lying, but talking about how she's looking for her friends in L.A. And um, he offers her a place to stay after he finds her kind of sleeping on the streets. Yeah. Um, and then uh, from there, uh, after using uh, after using the evidence gained from Leon's apartment, Deckard goes to a strip club where he ends up finding Zora, who is the... Uh, speaking of femme fatale, she is kind of a femme fatale in that she was a replicant designed for infiltration, assassination, and like to be like a combat unit. Because mm-hmm. I believe, I believe, um, Roy and Leon were also like combat units. She was like an assassination unit, and then um, Pris is just a. She just gets roped into being a love robot, which I felt so bad that that's how they <laughs> described her. <laughs> so Deckard goes and confronts Zora at the uh, strip club, pretending to be a. I, I remember correctly, he's like an author. 
or he's supposed to be like an author or he's supposed to be working for like some bureau ensuring like proper treatment of uh employees in like strip clubs i guess <laughs> which where's that job and how do i how do i apply for i mean <laughs> how do i stay away from that job for reasons <laughs> I know it's just there's so many jobs I can apply to. I need to know how to avoid that one in particular. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and I love that Deckard, and you know, power to power to Harrison Ford. He he goes into uh his uh he, you know shows off some range and starts displaying his soup stupid dirty voice from Apocalypse Now. Oh my god! Yeah, it was like what the fuck is going on. he's just hamming it up having fun yeah hamming it up is the best way to describe that so he just starts pretending to be this nerdy little pencil neck loser um and he's telling um what was her name god why am i blanking uh he was telling uh, Zora that sometimes people like drill holes into women's like dressing rooms to try to get a look while she's changing. Meanwhile, <laughs> <just> horrifying. <laughs> I know. <laughs> this is some porky shit. <laughs> so he's able to confirm the uh the snake is the same or shows the same skin as the one he found. And so as he's helping Zora get dressed for her uh next show. She gets the drop on him and starts beating the shit out of him <laughs> in the dressing room. Yeah, I mean, there is action in this movie for sure. <laughs> this is kind of one of them. Like, the sudden, the, the Voinkampf, like, thing in, in the beginning where the guy just suddenly shoots the guy giving the test. And, and then, like, something like this. Like, I love how, like, the action scenes in this movie are so sudden. Like, how it starts. For real, it comes out of nowhere. <laughs> You're thinking, oh crap! Like she, you know, he's still gathering information. Just she just starts kicking the shit out of him. She takes off running through the strip club. Uh, Decker goes chasing after her in kind of an extended like foot chase throughout uh, Los Angeles. We get the iconic shot of her running through this kind of like like these storefronts made appear like panes of glass. Uh, he takes his gun out in the you know out in public and just starts blasting. <laughs> he does his best Danny DeVito impression. So anyway, I started blasting, <laughs> and and then Zora proceeds to fall through every single pane of glass imaginable <laughs> until finally she falls over. Um, and as she's being checked by LAPD, it's revealed that she is dead. Um, and then at least in, in the one I saw, we get the narration where, um, where, uh, Deckard was talking about how he's feeling sorry, you know, that, oh, that this will be recorded as just your standard retirement of a replicant, but that it, for him, it's going to feel like shooting a woman in the back, um, which kind of deposits, like, this is the first inkling I got of, of them trying to say, uh, Deckard was a possibly a replicant in this movie, mm-hmm. and then he ends up comparing Zora to Rachel, um, and kind of laments having to having to have killed her. Um, after the confrontation, um, 
you know, he gets uh he goes and talks to Bryant, who then tells him Rachel's gone rogue and that Terrell and uh, the rest of the company can't find her. So now he's being ordered to uh retire her as well. Mm-hmm. Um Deckards ends up uh, following her through the crowd there in Los Angeles. Uh but he ends up getting attacked by Leon. <laughs> so <laughs> right off the bat Leon starts kicking the shit out of him. And again, you forget that these guys these the replicants are stronger. So um Deckard has, is completely at a disadvantage. So if he tries to fight him one on one, he's getting his ass kicked. <laughs> So, and, you know, they do a good job making him look, like, all bloodied and battered and stuff. Um, He tries to shoot, uh, he tries to shoot Leon. Leon knocks the gun out of his hand, and as he's being choked to death, uh, Rachel comes back around using Deckard's gun and ends up shooting uh, Leon in the head. Mm-hmm. And it's really cool. It's just, like, sudden, sudden explosion. And it's not like his head explodes in like gooey mass, which I'm glad they didn't do. They actually did have like a very T2 looking robot wound, which I thought looked awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think this is where they go back to Deckard's apartment. And this is that uncomfortable scene you and I were talking about where he's like, Pushing her around the apartment, like forcing him, forcing her to kiss him. Uh, but it's here that he promises that he will not uh retire Rachel mm-hmm. after he immediately retires her. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, he doesn't. He doesn't. But he ends up leaving her in the apartment uh, as he goes to search for the remaining replicants. So Roy ends up meeting up with Roy, who's played by Rutger Hauer. And I just need to take a moment. Like, Rutger Hauer is such a fantastic actor. R.I.P. the man. Yeah. Like, his performance in this movie is so fantastic. We and got... specifically when we talk about, like, you know, I mentioned uh, that that Chris Nolan took a lot of uh, uh he took a lot of uh, inspiration from this when he made Batman Begins. Rutger Hauer is in Batman Begins specifically because right. he was in this movie. Yeah, that's a little wild to think about, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the same way, right? Like he, Dark Knight was based a lot on Heat and William Fickner was like the bank manager in that too. Mm-hmm. Like, like uh, he's deliberate with his movie references at times. Hell, even the Tumblr reminds you kind of the LAPD squad cars in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Now that you mention it. Um, but yeah, here, uh, Roy gets, he comes to the apartment and, uh, he tells Pris that the other replicants have, uh, have been killed. Um, and this is where Sebastian reveals that much like the replicants, he's living on borrowed time too, because mm-hmm. he has a weird premature aging disease. Kind of like reverse Benjamin Buttons. Yeah, <laughs> where, where he ages normally just super fast, mm-hmm. and they do a good job with the makeup because he does look haunting as kind of like an old an old baby Ben. And then, not to mention, he also has those little people dressed up as like Tinker Toys, which is super weird. Do <laughs> I was meaning to ask you about that? I was like, what the fuck is this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
But I guess that that's also revealing how um, Sebastian can create. Essentially, he's a creator. He can make things, right? So he mentions that his life will also be cut short, and much like how they were built with the four-year lifespan. Um, however, Roy ends up using Sebastian so that he can um, confront uh, Terrell at his home. Uh, when he confronts Terrell, he demands that you know, as his maker, that he gives him more life. Uh, Terrell tells him this is impossible and that, you know, he, that's why he was given these these memories and so that way he can enjoy and experience the life that he was able to have in, su- in such a short amount of time, the, mm-hmm. the, you know, the lives he was able to live. Um, and I think this is where uh, Roy confesses that, you know, all he has been is kind of like a killing machine. Um, but Terrell continues to praise Roy for his, like, for for his wonder and wanting to accomplish so much in such a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like this really, it's a very, it's a very like heart-wrenching moment when it's the monster finally talking to dr frankenstein it's the it's the creation finally confronting his creator and asking why why did you give me what is my purpose what did you why did you create me if only to suffer you know Mm -hmm. um and it culminates with uh roy kissing terrell and immediately crushing his skull which was fucking awesome (laughs) (laughs) um yeah, and uh, Sebastian later tries to flee, but he's also reported dead at some point. Um, when Decker goes to confront the remaining replicants at Sebastian's apartment, uh, Decker is attacked by Pris in uh, like an extended, what I can only call, dance battle. <laughs> As uh, <laughs> Pris continues to like hurricane Rana his ass around the apartment. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he ends up getting the upper hand and uh, manages to kill her. Um, right as uh, right as Roy returns to the apartment, uh, Roy's body begins to fail on him, uh, implying that his time is almost up. Mm-hmm. And so this leads to another like rooftop chase where Roy is still able to uh, clear jumps and gaps with ease. Deckard is struggling because you know the limitations of his uh, quote unquote human body. Yes. And as he ends up falling, or as he ends up landing on a ledge, he ends up you know holding up with the death grip, which begins to loosen. Uh, Roy pretty much throws him on the roof, saving him at the last minute. And before Roy dies. He reflects on his memories and everything he's learned as a replicant and ends up giving the uh will be lost in time like tears in the rain uh monologue. I had a buddy of mine from college who admitted to me uh that this scene makes him emotional. It's such a good scene. And this I think was also done by Rutger Hauer. Rutger mm-hmm. Hauer is it is the guy who 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 created this monologue in the same way that Edward James almost did the language thing. Um, and I think what they talked about, uh, what, what was mentioned, or at least what Rutger Hauer has said about this is that he tried to play the character of Roy 
as if that character is the protagonist of this movie. And it shows, and I think he does a really good job with that. Do you want to read the monologue? It's really good. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd have to pull it up. Uh, I don't. It's not one of those things that I know that I know by hand. So what you're telling me, you never said it to some movie loving girl to try to win her over. My wife has never seen this movie. <laughs> <laughs> you should just you should recite it to her and see what she says. Like, All right. Uh, so here, let me see. What is the monologue? I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watch sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser gates. All those moments will be lost in time like tears in rain. Time to die. (laughs) (laughs) You know the only movie that I felt to me, this is just for me, to have kind of captured that feeling, (laughs) like that banality, that has been and do you ever watch Chappie? No, I did not see that movie. But yeah, uh, by Neil Blomkamp. Yeah, no, I have not seen it. I, I I know the year it came out. Maybe it's one of the movies we should cover on this podcast, but I've never seen it myself. There, yeah, there's this scene where a robot essentially does the same thing. Mm-hmm. A robot confronts his creator and has a panic attack, and says, "Why would you create me if my only purpose is to die?" Mm-hmm. And for some reason, this, as someone that has been into, has suffered from existential dread for a lot of his life. Yeah. I this, think we all suffer from it even more now than ever before. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> like, and I always joke to people that I'm like, oh, you know, well, how is it that I'm able to cope in these trying times? Well, I've been in, in an existential crisis since I was six. So. <laughs> But for some reason, this like always gets me. This trope of like the the um the creation confronting the creator always gets me. I don't know if it's like maybe it's almost like uh the my brother's keeper thing from of mice and men how mm-hmm. how uh George and Lenny's re- uh relationship work, but same thing there that always gets me every time. Yeah. So. As um yeah, as his body uh fails him, uh Roy dies, uh Gaff arrives to congratulate Deckard, and um he and I forget he uses like these coded words talking about um I forgot. I forget exactly what the line Gaff is that says, or what exactly the line is that Gaff says. Oh, um, give me one second. Yeah, because essentially he's telling him that, um, something about um Rachel was not meant to live, but then again, who do- who is or something like that? Yeah, that's implying. Implying that he knows it's too bad she won't live, but then again, who does? There it is. 
implying that they know Rachel, that he isn't going to retire Rachel, but because of what he's done, Deckard has done what they've asked, they're not going to pursue anything against him or her. Right. Allowing them to start a new life. Um, Deckard finds the this origami unicorn, uh, which Gaff was known for making origami stuff uh, and leaving them kind of like around their office and stuff. Uh, however, it's revealed at the end um, that Rachel is a special replicant and that she will she doesn't have a expiration date mm-hmm. that she can live a long, long life. And cut to B-roll footage of them driving the driving on the mountainside from The Shining. Uh, roll credits, and that is at least theatrical cut of uh, Blade Runner. Yes. So before we get into our normal stuff, I didn't want to give you a chance to kind of talk about the differences that you might have noticed or that you, um, that you wanted to talk about or if you wanted to point anything out. From... Yeah, so the ending of it, we don't get the, uh, we really don't get the 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 them driving through the countryside. It actually goes back to, um, like the movie pretty much ends with Deckard finding the origami, um, the origami uh, unicorn, and um, in in your cut of the movie, uh, Deckard has a dream, right, of the unicorn. No, not in my cut. Okay, so. This is this is I think probably the major difference is that there is a um there is a dream sequence. Sorry, just give me one second because I don't want to get this wrong. No, no, dude, we're trying to wade through possibly six different alternate timelines of Blade Runner. <laughs> okay, yeah. So there's a there's a dream sequence, which I believe I guess is only the director's cut and the final cut dream sequence where Deckard sees a unicorn. So the significance of the unicorn uh, that Gaff leaves him is like basically how could Gaff have known that he was thinking or dreaming of a unicorn unless Deckard is a replicant and they've programmed programmed his dreams and his thoughts. Mm Mm-hmm interesting yeah that's fucked yeah but then it's like it's also wild because you see he's not nearly as strong as any of the other replicants unless he was programmed not to put up a fight yeah which i've heard like some people like again it's it's a movie that's draped in ambiguity like some people have said maybe he is like a nexus 7 like something that's even closer to human or whatever that that's what it is but mm-hmm. but then at the same time like throughout the movie it's like yeah you're, you're left to question could a human being survive all the things that Deckard goes through mm-hmm. um and it's just yeah so so whereas the movie <laughs> again it becomes ambiguous and i think even harrison ford said that he always wanted to play Deckard as if he was a human being and he mm-hmm. doesn't like the idea of Deckard being a replicant because he thinks you need to have a human point of view character uh, I think Ridley Scott is the polar opposite of that. His version of that movie, it is more, it's it's not blatant, right? It's mm-hmm. it's you know how like Chris Nolan keeps having to go back and like 
talk about like the top and inception over and over and over again mm-hmm. it's one of those things where like everyone's like well of course it's that he got stuck in a dream and all that kind of stuff and i think the, the, the in my opinion the point of inception which we've never done for this podcast and maybe we should at some point but i you know it's like it, to me it's like maybe the point of that movie is that it doesn't really matter is that the no. character went to where they wanted to go and Plus like the that, top was never his totem god damn it anyway i'm sorry sorry yeah. <laughs> this is me um, off so much and it's just yeah it just doesn't it, it 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 just really doesn't make sense to me that um like 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 uh to me it makes the most sense that he is a replicant like that is it and that and that's kind of like why the movie was so grim and probably why the studio wanted it to be changed and wanted to have a an ending that was a lot more i guess less less grim something that was more positive i guess or something mm-hmm. that was more you know less uh nihilistic i guess this movie becomes much more interesting if deckard is a replicant i think so and i do think that the final cut is a superior cut of this movie so um trust me I really... i'm if we ever revisit the thing i can do an entire half hour of fan theories just from the child McCready um interaction at the end of the movie. And it's like it's the same thing with this movie. Right. It's like depending on what what side of the aisle you sit on, you can find evidence to either prove he is a replicant or not. And I like when movies are like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't like oh, when movies give you a ridiculous answer to something. Um all right, so I guess we can get into this. Javi, uh did you like Blade Runner. I did. And I think I think this movie has an ex- an excellent existential story. I think the Rugger Howard's performance is fantastic. I love the aesthetic of this movie. I think it's fantastically shot. Um <laughs> Harrison Ford just hamming it up and just trying things, which I find hilarious. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have a narrator's voice though. No. And I think part of it is like you were saying, I th- it feels like he was brought in, in in an afterthought to try to like make the movie more lighthearted. Yeah, um, like I feel like when Harrison Ford is doing everything that's not Deckard, like just it, it I feel like it's like a 1940s voice that he's putting on. <laughs> I know, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like it's I feel like he's a character in the killing, that Stanley Kubrick movie that we did last year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, for like this movie is one of those that it generates discussion, and that's what makes it a really fun watch. Is that you know what what side of the aisle do you find yourself at the end of the film? And if you are a gigantic nerd like you and I, you can talk about this movie for fucking hours and have such mm-hmm. awesome discussions about it. So I think this movie is. I mean, it's great. It's a it's a cultural touchstone. It's a cult classic for a reason. Um, and I think it gets the amount of love it de- it definitely deserves. Uh, regardless of how you feel about Ridley Scott and how he feels about Marvel movies mm-hmm. or how he feels about moviegoers nowadays. Um, the man is a great filmmaker and I still, and I find, uh, I find it difficult to, um, at least hate on this film. Yeah. So I like it and I definitely recommend it. Um definitely 
would recommend people do a little bit of research on the movie because sci-fi is kind of a hard genre for um, casual people to kind of get into. Uh, but what about you, Angel? How'd you feel? You like this movie? So let me be... I guess I'll get into this now, but I did like this movie and I enjoyed this movie. I think when I was younger and in my 20s, you know, my early 20s, and I really discovered and I was super into this movie, I think it was easier for me to get into some of this stuff. Man, now that I'm older, that typically the movies that I watch, like I'll watch movies for this podcast. Like a lot, like, you know, like I just don't really watch movies the way I used to, like just as much as I used to before. So to me, like I found myself having to start and start and restart this movie several times this week because it was so, it was just kind of so dense. And and again, it's non-linear and, and I mean, it's a linear story, but it doesn't feel like a movie where you kind of can follow the plot unless you, as you mentioned, a, have seen it a few times or or have some kind of a baseline for what this movie's about like you know again a lot of the stuff that we've talked about that's in the novel or in you know it's is there's a lot of it is supplemental material that kind of fills it in and um and especially if you watch the final cut of the director's cut like it is it's it, it breaks down even less like if you if you were if you were a uh you know film goer who needs things broken down for them maybe the the narration works better um, but just be aware that the ending of the movie is not as definitive, I think, or is not as like, it's more definitive and less ambiguous than the final cut, even though I don't think the final cut's ambiguous. I think it, I think it gives you the real, you know, it, the real theory that he's just a replicant. Um, but I enjoyed the movie once I finally like started restarted it a couple times and got into it. I loved it again. It's a movie I like talking about. It's a movie I like mm-hmm. reading about. It's a movie I like seeing the documentary about. And I feel like th- it's one of those rare sit- uh, situations where the movie needs supplemental material, like or, or 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 it's best enjoyed with supplemental material as well. Kind of understanding. Uh, the world and 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 what the nuances of the story are. So yes, I do recommend it. I do think it's worth watching. I think much like what Javi said, you have to be prepared uh, that it is going to be kind of th- there are nuances to it, and and you will probably require some kind of supplemental material to understand some of the things, or listen to a podcast like ours. You know, after you've <laughs> seen it, and maybe it helps you understand it in a way. Like I did when I first watched it in college, like I did need like early or late aughts podcasts to kind of understand what it was that I was watching. So, oh, um, yeah. yeah. And sometimes I, I mean, that's also the show of an interesting movie. Sometimes if you if it makes you want to keep talking about it afterward. Um, and that's that we didn't even get a chance to really get into the book either where uh, Deckard is actually a retired uh, cop in San Francisco. And we didn't even get into like the differences in in that and and how that works too. Um, but yeah, like it, yeah, it's one of those that definitely requires. It, it's dense, <laughs> like that. That's how I felt. I think in watching any of the Tolkien stuff, sometimes I need so like any of the Lord of the Rings stuff, I need kind of like to focus in and really kind of like pay attention to uh to the movie so that i can get like a lot of the 
the backstory and like the history that goes on in like Middle Earth. Um, same thing. I will, the same way I felt about Blade Runner too. All right, so we'd like to thank you guys for joining us for this episode of the show. Uh, we hope you guys are enjoying uh, the movies that we've been covering this year on the podcast. Please continue to interact with us on social media, on our Instagram page. Leave us reviews on Apple Podcasts if you can. Uh, rate the show in Spotify if you can. Uh, do do whatever you can to help get the word out on the podcast and 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 continue to grow our audience. Uh, we really appreciate you guys continuing to follow the show. Uh, I apologize again for the you know slight change in, in the schedule here. Um, but we're really glad that you guys are continuing to follow us and doing your part to help grow the show and, and the listenership. And uh, I think as, as Javi and I have mentioned several times on episodes this year, we're really enjoying going through the journey of the movies that you guys have selected for us to watch. So uh, very excited to come back to this world in a couple weeks when we do Blade Runner 2049. And I'm also interested to go back into the world of Mean Girls that we're going to go to next week. So uh, thanks for joining us for this episode, and we'll talk to you guys next time. Later, y'all.